Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike is joined by Dr. Joseph Chinyong Liao, the Tan Kaki Chair of Comparative and International Politics at Nanyang Technological University, where he's also a research advisor for the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I'm Mike Green. I'm not joined today by my colleague, Jude Blanchett. He's on paternity leave, wishing him and Katie the best of luck as they bring another Scottish-American strategist into the world to help us sort all this out. I am joined by Joseph Chinyong Liu. Joseph is the Tan Kaki Chair of Comparative and International Politics at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. He's also a research advisor for the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies, RSIS, a well-known strategic thinker, expert on everything from geopolitics to counterterrorism and trade. Joseph, thanks, and so glad you could join us. Thank you, Mike. A pleasure to be able to join you. So we always start with the how did you get here question. I'm guessing that the Leo family didn't bring you into the world and think, let's make him a think tank strategist. They were probably thinking doctor or lawyer or banker. Yeah. Uh, oh, engineer. Or how did you get into this? Oh, engineer. There you go. How did you get into uh, international affairs and in particular the geopolitical strategic piece? Well, I think my experience in the U.S. had a lot to do with it, Mike. When I studied at the University of Wisconsin, Madison. I wanted to be a journalist and I actually enrolled at Madison to do journalism. But after my first year or first semester, actually, I had to take a couple of electives, right? So I took a poli-sci class under Don Emerson, as you know. Somehow he managed to inspire me to pursue or he uncovered an interest in me in politics and in Southeast Asia and inspired me to pursue it further to the point that I changed my major to poli-sci and international relations. When I came back to Singapore, I had the pleasure and honour really to work under the late former president of Singapore, Mr. S.R. Nathan, who was also at one point ambassador, as you know, to the US. And that's how it all got started. And I suppose even if I wanted to turn back, it's a bit too late now. <laughs> I met Ambassador Nathan when I first got into this business, when he was still ambassador in the US very distinguished and big thinker. And Don Emerson is, of course, one of the great Asia hands, Southeast Asia hands. His dad, you know, was a very famous Japan expert in the State Department and warned about Pearl Harbor and other things. And famously, no one listened. So I'm glad you were listening to his son. And Wisconsin, of course, has a very strong Southeast Asia program. Is that what drew you there in the first place? Actually, no. You know, I mean, it was just a coincidence, serendipity, whatever you want to call it. But indeed, when I made the switch to poli-sci, and they had some really good IR poli-sci people as well. But as it turns out, in that context, I thought, since I'm from Southeast Asia, I should learn more about my region. And lo and behold, they had a Center for Southeast Asian Studies and wonderful people there, not just Don, they had Al McCoy, they had Mike Cullinane on the Philippines, Paul Hutchcroft, who became my undergraduate dissertation supervisor now at uh, ANU, but he was over at Wisconsin at that time, and we still keep in touch, and he's a dear friend. Yeah, so a lot of influences on me during that period. At Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin-Madison, it was one of the first political science departments in the country 110, 20 years ago, but also well-known then and now for having strong political science and strong regional studies. 
Yeah, yeah. And they produced the first sort of scholar ambassadors in the Wilson administration. I'm not saying you were there at the time. I know you're not that old, but a really strong pedigree. So strong training. So Ambassador Nathan, was he the founding leader of RSIS? Yes. Yeah, he was the founding director. Yeah, so he brought you in. Yeah. Yeah, and you worked at RSIS for a long time and really helped build it up as perhaps a preeminent think tank in Southeast Asia, one of the preeminent think tanks in the world. I had the pleasure of playing a small role in it. And now you're more of an academic, is that right? I consider myself half an academic, and I still have a very much a foot in the policy analysis, strategic thinking world. But primarily, what pays the bills is my job as an administrator, <laughs> at least for now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, same here. We won't talk about that. Yeah, Not yeah, interesting. Yeah. Left, better, best left for another time. Yeah. Let's talk about geopolitics and start big. President Biden and Xi Jinping met in San Francisco for APEC. It seems, together with Prime Minister Albanese and Xi Jinping summit and other moves, like strategic competition has a little bit less desperation to it, but fundamentally hasn't changed. But what's your take? What's the state of strategic rivalry and competition in the region? particularly U.S. and China, now that we're a month past APEC. You recall that in the lead up to APEC, there was a lot of discussion and talk with will they meet, won't they meet and all that sort of stuff. I think in hindsight, most people will say that, yeah, we kind of thought that they would meet. But in any case, they met. Everyone sort of heaved a sigh of relief and we thought that it would at least help dial things down a little I suppose yes and no. Yes, in the sense that it was good that the two leaders met and went on record to state their commitment to stabilizing the relationship. But at the same time, as we know, not too long after the meeting, right, number of developments, I'm not only talking about Biden's reference to see as a, an autocrat, right, but over and above a number of policies or the continuation of trade restrictions, this time on Chinese EV batteries, on companies and individuals who were implicated or alleged to be implicated in the Xinjiang human rights abuses and things like that. Yeah, So it was, in that sense, sobering as well because it reminded us that just because the two leaders met doesn't mean that things are going to change overnight. In fact, we are entering into, I think, some rough waters, if you ask me. We have presidential elections, obviously, in the US. And given the current climate, I don't think anyone is betting against China featuring prominently in the discussions and debates. And before that, we have the Taiwan elections. That's also going to stir things up a little, I think. By the looks of it, I haven't looked at latest polls, but by the looks of it, it still seems like the DPP may be on course for victory. Those of us who have been watching this closely, we all know what the Chinese are going to think and do probably in the event of a DPP victory, and they'll do it pretty quickly. And it's going to be quite sustained as well, I think. What I'm talking about is a possible or probable uptick in military activities in the Straits and things like that. Yeah, so it's going to be a tough year for US-China relations, I feel. You flag things like the EV battery decision in Washington that the US side did. But the reality is, although the diplomatic tone may have slightly improved, the People's Liberation Army and Navy and Air Force did not get the memo or ignore the memo because the operational tempo is, if anything, up a bit, particularly around Taiwan, but in South China Sea, the dangerous maneuvers near US, Canadian, Australian ships and planes, and Japanese. So it's still rough waters. Part of the administration's 
approach towards APEC with the summit with Xi was really to convince some key constituencies that the U.S. is trying to avoid catastrophe, is trying to have some stabilization without abandoning competition. And U.S. business community is an important constituent. Allies like Australia, Japan are important constituents. I think Southeast Asia might be the most important constituent they were thinking about. How do they convince ASEAN that although the U.S. has bipartisan support and support from close allies for standing firm on competition with China, they're going to be responsible. They're going to, you know, as Kurt Campbell and Jake Sullivan wrote in Foreign Affairs, they'll have competition without catastrophe. Do you think they're convincing your colleagues in Singapore and the rest of Southeast Asia? Well, a few things in response to that. First is, as you well know, there is a diversity of views in Southeast Asia with regards to not just U.S.-China relations, but what the Americans are doing, or what the Chinese are doing for that matter. Yeah, So that's first and foremost. Second is, I think if you sort of divvy up this issue of American engagement, commitment in line with the assurances that they're trying to give to the region, in terms of the defense presence of the U.S. and military engagement, I think across the board, there is a sense that it has, I mean, it is necessary yeah, in, in Southeast Asia. You're not going to get a lot of states who will, a lot of uh, regional states who are going to be too open about welcoming the U.S. military presence. But on the other hand, sort of counterfactual, I think if the U.S. tomorrow or this afternoon was to say that, oh, we're deciding to withdraw all our forces from the region, I think everyone's going to scramble without a doubt. So I think there's that. But the other side of the coin, I think the one that really has been causing a lot of frustration, if I may, in the region is the lack of decisive American commitment to trade in the region. And this is hardly anything new to people in the Beltway, in the administration. You keep hearing it, but that's the whole point. We, we have to keep raising it because it is that important and it is that consequential a missing piece in the puzzle. And it's for that reason that when you look at China, what the Chinese are offering economically, it's for that reason that we cannot, the region is still very intent on developing that relationship with the Chinese, even though states in the region have some apprehension to what the Chinese are doing, you know, in the South China Sea, among other things. Yeah? So I think assessing what the U.S., or what the Biden administration has said, I think it is encouraging. We want to believe it and buy in. But at the same time, we know, and again, despite all the hard work that commerce did to get things passed through on IPEF, the missing trade element, which had to be withdrawn, you know, not commerce fault, yeah, obviously, but nevertheless, that was again a reminder that the US is absent from the table as far as trade is concerned and is absent at a time where everyone in the region really wants to double down on regional trade. So that's unfortunate. You know, on the trade piece, a lot of people who've been on this podcast have said that the Trump decision to pull out of TPP and then the Biden administration to not attempt to get into CPTPP, maybe in the biggest strategic mistake or onside goal the U.S. has made in the last 30 years in Asia. And friends in Singapore and Japan and Korea and Australia can't hammer this point home enough for me. Don't be shy about it. And you're right about commerce. Commerce is usually not the innovator in trade policy, but under Secretary Raimundo, it really is. 
very dynamic. USTR is usually the trade liberalizer, but the current USTR basically has been outsourced to part of the Democratic Party that has an ideological opposition to trade deals. So it's the trade politics in Washington are rent-seeking. You figure out who do you give what to get the deal. The problem is some of this is not rent-seeking at all. It's ideological. There's just absolutely no convincing. So it's very, very tough. So criticism taken. But let me push back a little bit and ask you about this because Singapore has a unique and high level of comfort with trade liberalization. It's a matter of survival for Singapore. But a lot of other Asian countries really didn't like it when USTR, the old USTR, was going in pushing for market liberalization. And IPEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, for all its flaws, is easy enough that Indonesia and others can get in it. So yes, Singapore hits us on this, but how broad is the concern about the lack of US trade policy? Across, when you're going to places like Indonesia or even Cambodia, do they really think about it as much as people do in Singapore? Yeah. No, no, I, I think I think they do. I think they do. Of course, it could be a matter of degrees. But if you recall back in the heyday, the good old days, right, of TPP and when it was really high on the agenda for the region, quite a number of Southeast Asian states, Thailand, Indonesia, hell, even the Chinese, right, were saying that they wanted to find some way into the TPP, assuming the TPP actually materialized the way we had all hoped it would. And I think the whole idea that the TPP then was designed to set a better, a higher standard, a higher quality kind of trade agreement, I think it got buy-in certainly from all the major economies in the region. I mean, the Indonesians, you will recall when Jokowi was in Washington, I think was was it early 2016 or late 2015, he publicly announced at Brookings, because I was there at the time, that Indonesia wanted to join the TPP, right? So I think at that point, everyone held out the hope that we could work together to really bring regional trade to a whole new level. But of course, we all know what happened uh, after that. And unfortunately, I think the sort of strategic blunder, if you will, of the Trump administration's decision to withdraw pertain not only to U.S. interests in the region, not only to U.S.-China rivalry, because I think the TPP would have actually been a very effective mechanism for the kind of trade policy that the U.S. eventually decided to pursue with the Chinese. But what it also did was make a lot of regional countries take a couple of steps back with regards to their views on trade and the potential for trade. I mean, the Vietnamese is another example. Of course, they eventually bit the bullet and went ahead with CPTPP, but the kind of domestic actions that they had to take in order to make sure that Vietnam could be considered for the TPP, I think it was a big political move on their part. Yeah, So, so it, it forced quite a number of the major regional countries to recalculate. Yeah, And so right now with, with RCEP, with IPEF, you see these states rebuilding their commitment to regional trade. I mean, it was quite a blow. It was quite a blow, as you know. There are clearly some made in America problems with American trade policy. The fight for labor union votes is pretty intense. That's a big reason. Places like Wisconsin, where you were, and Michigan, and Pennsylvania, that's a big part of it. But also the logic that propelled the U.S. to do this has changed. The Bretton Woods system created opportunities for Japan, Germany, Korea to become net exporters of economic welfare and security because of free trade and helped to win the Cold War, basically. 
the big prize after the Cold War with things like TPP was to integrate China on our rules. And I still think that might have worked, might have, but nobody believes that anymore. It's too late for now. So I think it's a little bit incumbent, frankly, on friends like Singapore or Australia or Japan to help articulate why we need things like IPEF and TPP when the big prize now isn't getting China to play by the rules and opening the Chinese market. Because let's not forget, she has his own turn against globalization and dual circulation and decoupling strategy. So we, I think a big part of it, and I think Singapore is a big thought leader in this, is articulating why we're doing this. There are a lot of reasons in terms of digital trade rules and other things, but we haven't quite gotten there. And the US won't figure it out on its own politically, I don't think. Yeah. No, 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 I agree with you. Just very quickly, I think you're absolutely right that it is incumbent on a number of regional states, friends of the US, to help make that case. And I think they have been doing that because... As you know, there's a lot of debate about IPEF, right? And about whether, to put it quite bluntly, the way some people would describe it, whether it's worth the paper it's written on and that sort of stuff. But I think the Singapore's, Australia's, Japan's of the world, at least in the regional discussions, have been quite clear that this is something that we should have on the table and we should sign up to it in the hope that, at least for now, it keeps the US engaged economically, Uh, in the region and in the hope that it would be a pathway to subsequent or further reintegration of the United States to the evolving architecture, economic architecture in the region. I'm an optimist that will work in the end. All the polls show that Americans, the public, are more supportive of economic. You're right. Yeah, yeah. The problem is that there's never a referendum on this. It's elite politics and special interest groups and so forth. And it is what it is. That's a good segue to ask you a little bit in your experience mentored by people like Ambassador Nathan and being, you know, from my perspective, quite sought after by the government of Singapore for strategic advice. Good segue to ask you how you would describe Singapore's grand strategy right now. I mean, Singapore is about shaping the big players and moving much bigger countries with bigger populations and militaries and economies to do things that serve Singapore. Singapore may be the best country in the world, actually and doing that at getting the big powers to adopt their agenda. But now that the strategic competition, how does that shaping and balancing thought leadership strategy work for Singapore? Yeah, well, a few things. And I really should start with the point that I'm certainly in no position to claim to know anything about Singapore's grand strategy, assuming we have one. I mean, it is a very complicated, complex world today. And truth be told, there's actually quite a bit of discussion, at least in the strategic thinking community in Singapore, about this precise question. Does Singapore have a grand strategy for this so-called new world order, should we have one? Yeah, but that's a a separate thing. I think from my perspective, at least, it has not so much been about us shaping the great powers as primarily making ourselves relevant in a constructive way to the great powers. And this is something that has been quite central to Singapore strategic thinking insofar as the great powers are concerned, because as you know, we start from the premise that we are congenitally irrelevant because of our size. yeah, And so it is incumbent upon us to make ourselves uh, relevant. And the entire national effort has been geared towards that. And I think that continues to be the case. And this is why, at least within the, the Singapore community, the question is not so much about this perennial issue of choosing sides, right? The US and China, that sort of thing. Because 
we have to make ourselves relevant and useful for both the US and China. But of course, when we talk about being relevant and useful, it has to be predicated on our own interests and what we want for our country and our people. And that's where I think things sometimes gets a bit tricky because our idea of our usefulness to an external great power may not be that power's idea about how useful we are to them. And that's where in the second order, we need to make clear, we need to hold the line with these external powers. And I think you would have seen this play out a number of times over the past few years. I suppose one example is our very adamant push for legislation against foreign interference, for example. I mean, the whole idea behind foreign interference is that there are external entities that are very proactively trying to influence and shape politics in Singapore in a particular direction. And it is very urgent for the government of Singapore not just to be aware of that, but to really push back against that, which is what they have been doing. Is there popular support in Singapore for that? Because a lot of these foreign interference efforts aim at community groups. We're not saying which country, but it isn't uh, Laos. And it also sort of gets at Lee Kuan Yew's vision of a Singapore that has a non-ethnic identity as a nation. Is there pushback in politics against this effort? Yeah, I think that from the perspective of foreign policy making in Singapore, the ground is changing. The electorate is changing. I mean, we're moving from a time where you could say that there was not all that much interest in foreign policy or that the electorate, by and large, were prepared to let the leadership of the country just formulate and implement foreign policy and everyone goes along. Today is very different, right? Today, a lot of questions are being asked. The population is better informed, for better or worse. You know, I mean, there's a lot of garbage online that people still sort of draw on. But the reality is that people are forming their own ideas. And the political climate has changed also in the sense that more and more people are speaking up. And that's good in terms of the maturing of uh, Singapore society. But what it does mean is that the people who make policy have to have a clearer sense of the policies and will have to convey it and, if necessary, work double time to persuade and convince a population of the wisdom of any given policy. Yeah, I think a good example, if I may, was this issue of Singapore's position in relation to the Russia-Ukraine war, right? Where as far as our leaders are concerned, it was a very clear principled position based on the UN Charter, principles of sovereignty, territorial integrity, uh, big powers imposing themselves, annexing territory, that sort of stuff. But we had segments of the population who were, for a variety of reasons, sceptical about that idea. Believing, for example, that, oh, Singapore is only echoing the US, even though our leaders made it very clear, point A, point B, point C, why it is in our national interest, first and foremost, to be taking this position. So what happened was the government, the leaders had to really work overtime to try to explain this to the people. Whether or not it was successful, I don't know. It's difficult to say. But this is indicative, at least to my mind, of this new landscape with regards to foreign policy and how the domestic popular opinion relates to it in uh, Singapore today. 
the Singaporean strategy, it, it seems to me, has depended on or aimed for a, a world order that might emphasize rule of law and good governance and international institutions, but not democracy, human rights. And, you know, our mutual friend Chan Heng Chi, when she was ambassador in Washington, and I would have frequent breakfasts at the Hay Adams, and we'd agree on nine out of 10 things. And then when this issue came up, she'd <laughs> corner me and give me both barrels. But the world's not listening. I mean, there is more of an ideological, ideational flavor to the competition. Joe Biden ran because of Trumpism and what he saw in Charlottesville, Virginia, with extremists and neo-Nazis. But he really clearly believes, and I don't think he's completely wrong, that there is a clash between authoritarian and democratic models. Xi Jinping is certainly playing into that, deliberately or not, with his no limits alliance with Putin, trying to bring Iran into the BRICS, his World Civilization Initiative and other things that are designed to say democracy is a sort of blip in history that ancient Han Chinese or Persian culture is more important. That can't be a comfortable trend line for Singapore. What's your take on it? Is it changing thinking in Singapore? Or do you think that fundamentally the ideological piece is just rhetoric and we're still talking basic power politics? Yeah. I don't think that we should be so, we as in uh, Singaporeans, should be so flippant to just dismiss it as rhetoric because I think there is a very strong ideological pull either way. The question is, do you allow that to be the primary determinant in how you position your country and in this case with regards to foreign policy? Yeah. And this is where, if you will, the ideology of pragmatism <laughs> of the Singapore leaders from generations before comes in. But sometimes in Singapore, it's a bit of a trope to talk about pragmatism, that Singapore is pragmatic. But to give a concrete example, with regards to the US and our relationship with the US, you're absolutely right that 9 out of 10, but then that 10th piece there's always differing views and it, it surfaces ever so often, right? You remember way back in the early 90s or late 80s, starting in the late 80s, right? This whole Asian values debate, right? The thing is, at least from my view, a lot of this is baked into the DNA of the US, democracy, human rights. So in that sense, it is, you could say it's ideological. Now, we or any other country could have a different view and we're not going to change your mind, you're not going to change our mind. So the question to ask is the extent to which we're going to allow this to feature prominently in our efforts to improve bilateral relations or even to obstruct these efforts. Yeah? And I think this is where the pragmatism from the Singapore perspective comes across and also from the perspective of the US. Yeah? I think it's gone on for so long, we've, in a sense, agreed to disagree. So, for example, Singapore was not invited to the summit of democracies. I mean, boo-hoo-hoo, -hoo, right? Suck it up and get on, right? I don't think we expected to be invited. I don't know. I mean, I would say maybe we weren't all that surprised that we weren't invited given what we understand of the American view on these matters. But are we going to allow that to dampen efforts to improve relations with the US? We certainly don't think so. And as it turns out, neither does the Biden administration. So I think it is what it is. Yeah. That summit was, I think, genuine in intent. I think Biden was onto something. It was a bit flawed in execution, in my view. It, it would have been better to have had a broader aperture to include Singapore and others. It would have been smart early on to co-host with Korea or others. They've obviously changed their thinking in the White House since a bit. But this is not an American-only thing. I mean, you see it everywhere. The Japanese foreign policy statements in the Diet, 
speeches now regularly emphasize the importance of democratic values. That's only in the last 10, 20 years. The UN government in Korea has committed hundreds of millions of dollars to supporting democracy in the Indo-Pacific. You see in the EU strategic documents, uh, an emphasis on democratic values that's quite new. Australia just had a parliamentary inquiry on the role of democracy in foreign policy. And the overwhelming majority of submissions said Australia should keep this as a theme, as a priority. DFAT doesn't always agree, but we did a survey at my center here in Sydney. Australians are more likely to say that human rights should be emphasized than Americans are. So it's not just sort of America and it's Thomas Jefferson messianic. I think China is sort of awakening a lot of countries to their own values. And it's not exactly the same as the U.S., but certainly it's not a sort of Singapore model and a U.S. model. There's a lot of countries out there that are Singapore's friends and neighbors that are moving in a certain direction, I think. Yeah, that's for sure. And as you well know, there's an academic and a philosophical, really, debate also about this issue of democracy, human rights, and that sort of thing. I think there are a lot of things about Singapore society that would not fall easily into a category of democratic practice if an American, if a caring, you know, American Democrat will list out. But given the kind of context that we have in Singapore, the kind of open liberal and the history of Singapore, the kind of open liberal democracy that is very much celebrated in the US and, as you rightly point out, in some other countries as well. If you think about it, if you honestly think about it, if it was implemented in Singapore, it would come with a cost, a societal cost, I think. And the question is whether we can risk that cost. I mean, as a small country located where we are geographically, the margin for error is much smaller for us than it is for the United States or for Japan or Australia. Yeah, so it is, uh, you know, I'm not saying that either way is right or wrong, but it is certainly a very complicated kind of equation that we're trying to square here. Lee Kuan Yew was famously admiring of British liberalism as he saw it in the what, 1920s, 30s, when he was a student? Yeah, yeah. So in some ways, he recreated a Victorian-era model of liberalism perfectly, you know? And Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it depends whether you're talking about the earlier Lee or the later Lee. <laughs> yeah, this is true, too. I have actually read his Singapore story. It's very, very long and very interesting. The U.S., I think, is moving towards, particularly in Congress, at least for internationalist Republicans and most Democrats, a belief that really we have to mainstream democracy in our foreign policy. But it's so hard. There's so many hard choices. Look at India right now and a critical partner for the U.S., but some criticism emerging about Hindutva and other things. It's always situational. It's never perfectly consistent. My own view is that someone on democracy should have approached this as a collective effort with the U.S. also trying to get the balance right. And the more countries that are in that, that are at least to some extent serious about good governance and democracy, the better, because it's a global thing at the end of the day, I do work with the National Endowment for Democracy on something called the Sunnylands Initiative, where we bring 20 to 30 thought leaders on democracy from across the Indo-Pacific to look for those common themes. That kind of thing is going to grow. And I predict eventually Singapore is going to be in that discussion. The younger Singaporeans I know, and I haven't been to Singapore in a year, but when I meet former students and their friends, to me, it seems younger Singaporeans, at least the well-educated ones, are thinking about this issue quite differently. Yes. From the generation before. Yes. Uh, that, that, you, you're that, that, a professor. Am I wrong about that? No, no, I think you're absolutely right. 
I think you're absolutely right. The reality is it's going to change. The landscape is going to change. Yeah, And the leaders of today, or rather the leaders of tomorrow, I mean, we're still sort of stuck in this 3G, 4G <laughs> leadership thing. But in any case, the people who are going to lead the country are very much aware of that as well. Yeah. Mm. Let's just talk about Gaza for a minute. The October 7th Hamas, brutal, uh, horrific Hamas attack on Israel Israeli campaign in Gaza, that's the kind of development globally that is deeply concerning for countries like Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia. Events in the Middle East have an outsized influence on some countries in Southeast Asia. How are you viewing that? And are people on pins and needles in Singapore right now? I wouldn't say on pins and needles, but it is a major development and one that, from what I know, Singaporeans are watching very closely, not just the decision makers, but the general population as well, right? Of course, there is first and foremost a very acute religious dimension to it. And if you look at what's happening certainly in Malaysia, I mean, they they make sure to remind us in the region of that every single day. But it's more than a religious issue because if you were to poll the population of Singapore in general, you'll find a lot of non-Muslims who are also very sympathetic to the plight of the Palestinians in Gaza. So there's this humanitarian dimension to it as well. I've had conversations with my kids, late teens and early 20s, and they and their circle are very sympathetic to the Palestinians and very, very upset about what the Israelis are doing. So that's the one sample of the sentiment on the ground. But in the larger Southeast Asian region, you have Malaysia that is probably the most vocal supporter internationally of Palestine today. The Prime Minister of Malaysia, Anwar, is probably the most vocal defender of Hamas today. And that's, of course, very striking. It raises a number of questions from a sort of larger regional geostrategic angle. You know, the Malaysians now are facing a conundrum, right? Because the United States Congress is making very clear that they want to start sanctioning groups or individuals, for that matter, I think, who have relations with Hamas. So what does Malaysia do, right? As an important ASEAN member, an important regional country for the United States, but very clearly staking their flag on this issue on the side of Hamas and Palestine. Yeah. So the Malaysian government has tried to be defiant about this, but it remains to be seen how this is going to play out because there are implications beyond just humanitarian corridors and ceasefires in Gaza. In the case of Indonesia, the Indonesian government has been a bit more careful. They have not articulated any support for Hamas, yeah, but obviously they have voiced support for Palestine. It's very much in keeping with the Sukarnois, Bandung spirit, you know, non-aligned movement, that sort of stuff. But one thing I've noticed is that a lot of the Islamic groups on the ground, civil society groups, including the mainstream, more pluralist kind of groups, they have, number one, they've obviously spoken out in support of Palestine. But number two, they've also talked about Hamas as freedom fighters. 
You're talking about NU and some of the yeah. mainstream large. NU, uh, Muhammadiyah, these groups, yeah? alone the more extremist groups. Yeah? So to them, they talk about Hamas as uh, what, what they call perjuang, yeah? freedom fighters. So that's a particular perspective on Hamas, which raises eyebrows among many other people. So it's a very dynamic uh, situation, I think, in Southeast Asia. And yeah, it's certainly something worth watching very closely as things evolve. Singapore's population of the Muslim population is about 10, 12 percent. About 13, now, right? 13.5. 13. And Singapore's large neighbors are overwhelmingly Muslim majority countries. And so it's no surprise that the intelligence and security services between Singapore and Israel have been pretty close. Yes. Do you think Singapore has any role at all to shape what Netanyahu's strategy is? Or is if the U.S. can, how could Singapore, I guess? Frankly, it doesn't look like anyone can shape what Netanyahu wants to do. I think he's fighting for his political survival and political legacy. It's gloves off for him, if you ask me, because he knows he's on borrowed time. So it's very difficult for anyone to shape his thinking. It makes the puzzle a lot harder for a lot of countries and leaders who want to help Israel in this really, really tough time, for sure. Joseph, we could go on. We could talk about technology. We could talk about 2024 elections in the U.S., we're going to have to have you back on. But as everyone can tell, Joseph Thiel is one of the sharpest observers of geopolitics and comparative politics in Asia we can find. And we're really glad you could join us. I'm sorry Jude couldn't be with us, but I'm, I'm sure he's listening somewhere. <laughs> thanks, Joseph. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at CSIS.org and click on the Asia program page. And for more on the U.S. Studies Center in Sydney, please visit ussc.edu.au.